Welcome to the Fixing Healthcare Podcast, Breaking the Rules. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur, also the host of the popular New Books and Medicine Podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Care and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits from his books go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertperlmd.com. Our guest today is Dr. Zev Neuwirth. Zeb is the Clinical Chief of Care Transformation for Atrium Health, author of the book, Reframing Healthcare, and host of the podcast, Creating a New Healthcare. His new book, Beyond the Walls, Megatrends, Movements, and Market Disruptors Transforming American Healthcare, comes out this September. Hi, Zev, and congratulations on your upcoming book, Beyond the Walls, Megatrends, Movements, and Market Disruptors. Robbie, it's it's such a great pleasure always to speak with you. Zev, this season of Fixing Healthcare, it's our eighth season, is about leadership, and your book, in many ways, is a collection of insights from America's healthcare leaders. Before we dive deep into leadership, let's catch listeners up on the book itself. Let's start with the first section that you title Megatrends. What are some of those and how do they intersect with healthcare leadership in the future? Thanks for the question, Robbie. So the the first part of the book is about really the the movement of healthcare beyond the literal walls of our system, beyond the hospital walls, the walls of the emergency rooms and urgent care centers and, and clinics. It's really the movement of healthcare uh, from what we traditionally, as you know, Robbie, we, we, when we talk about the point of care, we mean w- where we are as clinicians. And the first section is really the movement of the point of care from us to where the point of need is, that is where people are living their lives. And so that section speaks to, first of all, the the probably the greatest revolution of our times, I think, which is the digital health revolution. Um, you know, it's the great enabler. And uh, and so it's 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 really unprecedented in in terms of of how it's going to transform healthcare delivery as well as other aspects of our society, but but again it's just an enabler, and what it will enable is amongst many other things uh, it will enable this movement uh, uh, from the, the traditional point of care uh, being in the hospital and clinic. Uh, to the point of care being where the point of need is, care being delivered much, much more contextually, much, much more continuously, and I think much, much more customer or consumer oriented uh, as they'll, you know, as people, all of us will have much more agency in the digital uh, health age. And so, you know, and then I, I talk about not just virtual care and digital care, automated care, I talk about the movement of, of the hospital at home. And of course, it's not just, as you know, not just the hospital, it's urgent care, it's post-acute care, it's uh, chronic disease management care, really moving into the home. 
And and finally, I'll say this before I, I really speak to what I, I'm so glad you you raised the point of leadership. But I, I think that you know, as I've talked to to actually quite honestly to you and other experts in the, in the field, I, I think there's probably three domains of healthcare in the future. Um, the first domain is still going to be in person. So I don't think anyone is saying uh, that in person care is going away. It's just not going to happen in in our lifetime, and uh, if ever. And the second domain, though, is is that virtual domain, whether it's you know you text messaging or or social media messaging or you know uh, video messaging, that's going to be the second domain. Um, and then the third domain is really really interesting, and I think this is where you know uh, uh, AI and, and ChatGPT and these other uh, these other generative uh, artificial intelligences and machine learnings is going to help us with with this sort of automated care. So the notion that we can actually you know, train machines uh, to actually do a fair amount of the interaction. Uh, some of it is back office stuff. Some of it is very, you know, referrals and, and navigation and things like that, um, informational. But uh, but I think it's three domains. It's in-person, the virtual, digital, and of course, the automated care. Um, but I, 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 I'd love to turn to this notion of, of leadership uh, and the mindset of leadership, if, if you'd like to. Let me, before we go there, Let's assume we know the population is aging, but let's assume it stayed constant from, from that perspective. You could freeze the population, but move the time clock. Uh, how many fewer hospital beds, inpatient beds, do you think, what percentage of inpatient beds do you believe should go away? What percent of in-person visits do you think would be diminished by the changes that you're describing? And maybe most importantly, Will will this shift lower cost or will it just increase convenience? Let me start with the last thing. I, I do think that um, it'll do both. There's no question that, yeah, well, when I talk to the experts in hospital at home in particular, you, you look at the fixed cost of, of being in a hospital you know the, the the infrastructure itself each hospital bed depending on the type of hospital bed and where it's located in the country could be anywhere from two to five million dollars you know so if you're located in an area where there's lots of earthquakes there's a lot more infrastructure and is what i'm told but but essentially it's a multi-million dollar investment for every single bed and it's not the bed itself obviously it's literally everything around it um that must you, you must and again it's fixed and 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 pretty much and so i i think when you start to move care to a different location, which is fundamentally is people's homes, um, and you lower the cost of, of a lot of that infrastructure, there's no question. And again, I think the literature is very clear on this, that you're seeing right now, currently I've read, you know, numbers anywhere from 25 to, you know, 45% reduction in cost. Now, of course, at the current moment, uh, with, with parity of payment, uh, it's costing the same, right? So Medicare, CMS up till now, uh, with the PhD is paying the same for a hospital at home bed as they would for an inpatient bed. But the truth is that the costs are much lower. Everyone is aware of that. And as the technology advances, it's going to get even even less and less uh, costly. And so I think we're going to start to see those costs. For sure, the payers are going to demand a lower cost uh, of payment for a hospital at home or you know any service at home than you would in a, in a fixed structure with all that overhead. So in terms of convenience, hands down, we know that it, this is so much more convenient and comfortable for patients and their families. 
We've done video ethnography. We've we've done customer discovery. People love it. They're they're in their homes. They you know they feel comfortable. They feel safe. They've got the the food they want. Uh, they've got the family members and friends uh, that they need and want. They can get up and move around in a way they want. So a lot of the you know I think the you know the the trauma that that you see in in hospital visits a lot of it is really removed. Um, and so I, there's no question that it is it is absolutely more convenient and more comfortable. And, and again, the literature is really clear in terms of even some of the safety issues in terms of fall risk and, sh and sundowning, that disorientation that occurs, especially in the with elderly folks in the hospital. Um, the risk of infection, of course, is greatly reduced. So, uh, you know, from a quality perspective, from a cost perspective and from a consumer, customer, patient perspective, Hands down, it, it, you know, this movement to the home is the way to go. Zev, in terms of the second part of your book, you title it Movements. What are they? The second part is probably the one that I think is most important for leaders in this country to see. And and it really, I, I wanted to title it, and the, and the correct, more accurate title of this part two of the book would have been Humanistic Movements. You and I are acutely aware of the problems in healthcare, in American healthcare, and you've written some amazing books and articles about it, um, which we've all learned from, as, as as others have as well. I think the what I was trying to do in, in this section in particular was talk about some of the amazing positive humanistic movements that are happening in healthcare that are, uh, I called it humanistic because it, it's really addressing the sort of psychosocial, emotional needs, as well as addressing, I think, disenfranchised parts of, of our of our community and culture. And so, for example, the first movement I talk about specifically, and, and by the way, I, I wish I could have written 10 chapters in this section. There are three chapters. I wanted to write more, but um, there was a limit on the amount of space, as, as you know, in the book. And, and so I was forced to limit it to three. Um, but uh, there's so many more stories I could tell you, but the three I wrote about was was one was this movement to really take care of seniors. And, and I think this is one of the most critical deficits in healthcare that the, the system is not built for seniors. In particular, I'm talking about older, older seniors and so and, and the frail elderly and those with complex chronic conditions. It, you know, if you're if you're 85 years old versus 35 years old and you go to see your doctor. There's absolutely no difference. You go see the same doctor in the same office with the same staff, with the same resources, with the same protocols. It cannot be that you have the same needs at 85 as you had at 35. And it cannot be that that one shop has everything that you're going to need as an 85-year-old or 95-year-old because we're, you know, we're getting the population is getting older, which is amazing. But it, it you do have different needs. And so that whole senior care movement is one that I would consider to be a humanistic movement. Um, what I, I and there are others like it, so which I, I actually wasn't able to write about. But even the movement around uh, this is around you know again and now I'm speaking to an issue around really customizing, segmenting, and customizing care. So another one that I've actually done a podcast on, but I wasn't able to include in the book was the whole movement around women's health. Now women's health has been around, but you know, I'll give you one specific example, and I, I do believe this is actually a humanistic movement. Another example of it is uh, the whole issue of menopause. So there are 60 million people in America, 60 million, uh, twice as many as the number of people with diabetes of any type, 60 million 
people in America that are in the midst of menopause. And of course, they're all women. Um, and there is not, has not been a great solution for a problem that has been so underwhelmingly addressed. Um, and once you hear about the issue and you hear the impact, and the impact is physical, emotional, relational, the, the number of women who have had to leave work, not be able to uh, to advance in their work, the impact it has you know, economically, it is an unbelievable problem that has not been addressed up until, up until recently, like in the last two or three years. And now you're seeing literally a, a, an explosion of new startups and clinics that are devoted not just to women's health, but specifically to menopause, this issue that 60 million people are actively suffering with. The third part of your book is about the market disruptors. Who are they and what are they? Well, I just want to let your listeners know, Robbie, that you are squarely featured in that section. And in fact, I, I quote you liberally throughout one of those chapters, the three chapters in the final section. It It is... I start off talking about, first of all, about platforms. And I, I learned about platforms in the last two years. I've been studying and tracking it. It's, um, it's I think, a, a business model uh, which is tech-enabled um, and digitally enabled, but it is a very, very new and different business model. Clearly, uh, Amazon is a great example of a platform. It works very differently than any other business model we have as opposed to being serial, it's different. And so I spend a chapter sharing with people how platforms have revolutionized pretty much every other industry and how they are going to revolutionize healthcare. And so that's that's the first chapter. And it's critical, critical that leaders understand the platform business model, not just the technology. I'm talking about the actual business model where you have vendors and customers sitting on a, on a platform and the implications of that are profound, specifically, I think, well, for everyone, but I think for hospital systems in particular. But you have to understand what a platform is. You can't just willy-nilly go into it. The, the second chapter in that section is about uh, what I call the titans of disruption. And I, I use that term, barring from the Greek mythology, these were the gods that existed before the Olympian gods. Uh, Cronus, Prometheus, Atlas were all titans. Um, and so I talk about the retailers uh, like Amazon and Walmart and, and CVS and Walgreens, and I talk about the payers. Um, and again, CVS is a hybrid uh, a payer retailer, but I talk about the payers, you know, Optum and Humana and Aetna. And I call them the titans because, you know, just their size, right? So their revenue, which, you know, most people are may not know, their annual revenues are, are literally 10 times larger than the largest healthcare systems in the country. And now they're in healthcare. So they're, they're the Titans just purely by their size. And so I talk about, you know, what they've been doing. And so people, you know, people read in the papers or, you know, blogs, or, you know, you'll get these feeds and they'll say, you know, CBS just acquired or Optum just acquired, or, you know, Humana just acquired. And so you see this, but I put the whole thing together and I walk people through each one of these, um, Titans and then the multi-year strategy in March that that they've been you know uh, having. It's so this is not just reactions. They they're they're really strategic. And and Robbie again, I thought your piece was absolutely brilliant in terms of the the short game, the medium game, and the long game. And so I I I basically share your thoughts on that. 
and I couldn't agree more with you, how strategic they are and where they're going and, and how they're really taking it. It's a stepwise march. They're really taking the ball down the field. Um, and, and it is the long game, as you point out, which I think you, you say the third part of it, the long game is really about market domination. And, um, and uh, you know, uh, so I, that's the middle section. And the final section, though, I think it's really, I, I love the final chapter because you look at this and, and Robbie, you and I haven't had a chance to really talk about this, uh, but I'd love to hear your opinion. I start the last chapter, which is chapter nine. I started by saying, look, you might think the game's over and, you know, the Titans are going to win, but let me take you back to Greek mythology. If you recall, the king of the Titans was Cronus and he had a son and that son's name was Zeus. And it turns out that Zeus actually decided to wage a war with the Olympian gods against the Titans and uh, the Olympians won and they took over and the Titans disappeared. And so I, I'm not trying to foreshadow uh, at all. I'm just saying that just because you have Titans doesn't mean that they're, they're going to win the battle or they're going to be, you know, forever. And so the last chapter I think is really important because I, I think it's, there's a both end and there's a generative uh, approach I'd like to take with this, which is that this is, the conversation should not be about disruption. The conversation should be about advancement. And I think um, I think the hospital systems, the hospital-based systems and healthcare systems and provider groups, I think they have an opportunity to shift from being disrupted to being disruptors. And I think there's a secret sauce there. And I think the secret sauce is, is partnerships, platforms, and collaborations. And so in the final chapter, I give examples of how visionary leaders and courageous leaders are really breaking the mold. And they're really forming all kinds of partnerships between traditional hospital systems and others, whether they be VC firms, other hospitals, even the payers and retailers. And I give a few examples and, and to begin that conversation. And it's really directed at, at hospital leaders um, because I don't think the game's over by any means. I think hospital systems are a necessary part of our healthcare system and will continue to be that. But I do believe that the leaders have to have a different mindset, a different conversation and different behaviors. Uh, not that I believe hospitals will ever go away. I, I just, I really wanna see them thrive. And it's, again, it's not so much about disruption, it's about how do we advance healthcare together. Putting the various parts of your book together, I'm understanding what you're seeing, and the sub-subtitle of your book is Transformation of Healthcare. Yeah. You see a world where hospitals are going to become, at least inpatient facilities, less important. The, the doctor's office will diminish in both volume and in, in centricity. You see a humanistic movement happening. You talk about disruptors, the tech-enabled platforms, the titans, and these partnerships Sounds very different than what exists today. So let's move into the area of leadership. What skills do you believe that leaders will need that are not particularly important today? The, the great giants of, of the science of reliability and process improvement from, from the last century, they, you know, the Toyota production system, things like that, they, they Six Sigma, all that sort of the, the, the real giants that created that whole field they outlined that sort of a, a mindset and they they talked about the fact that you know people who are at the front line working got to focus on you know what they're doing they got to keep the trains running 
you know, uh, on the tracks, on time. Efficiency is really, really important. Continuously improving that efficiency, you know, the immediate effectiveness of what they're doing, the reliability of what they're doing. So nearly 100% of their brain power and attention is focused on that. As you start to move up the managerial chain, you get to senior leaders, executives, and what they outlined was that it was critically important for the executives to be spending the majority of time not focused on the here and now, because that's what you know the frontline you know people are doing. In our case, in healthcare, it's doctors and nurses and other providers and staff and the managers and you know mid-level executives all focused on keeping that going because it's so important, of course, in terms of quality and reliability and safety and customer service and, 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 and efficiency. So all of that is the vast majority of the organization is focused. But as you move up, more and more of the brain power has to be look not looking down, but looking up and into the future. And when you get to the C-suite uh, and you get to the board level, most of your brain power needs to be focused on the future, on, you know, call it what you will, innovation, transformation. So they knew that. Even in the 1950s and 60s, they knew that and they wrote about that. And I think what we experienced in the earlier, in the, in the 80s and 90s, 1980s and 90s, in the first part of the century, we went back to you know, a real focus on process improvement and leaning everything and Six Sigma and all that sort of stuff. And what we saw in healthcare as well as every other industry is we started to fall behind. That if you were so focused on just the here and now and you weren't focused on the future, you literally in the market started to do worse and worse and worse. You weren't investing in transformation. I think that is an absolutely critical lesson in terms of a mindset and mind space where I would like to know and, and understand what percentage of a C-suite executive's time is, is being focused on the here and now versus the future. And I would hope and urge that, and I believe to you know the point you were saying, if we are going to develop this future, and again, it's not just, I'm not just saying it's the C-suite exec because there are executives and managers who, who are going to spend 10, 20, even 30% of their time on the future as well. But for sure, the people who are in the, who are on the board and the C-suite have to be aware of, of what's happening now, where things are going, how the digital enablement and tech enablement can support what it is we need to do. And, and these are problems that... Um, the term perfect problems has come up. It's these are problems that we cannot solve with the thinking we've had before. It requires a different sort of problem solving, a different orientation. Of course, my first book was all about that, the the reframe roadmap, the type of of steps and processes, but you need to actually come at it with a different orientation, redefine the problem in that orientation, and then redesign and resource based on that. And so I think I think this is absolutely we are not, and, and and this is what worries me, if we get so caught up in the past or the here and now, now or say we're just going to go back to the, the game plan we had you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, that is a recipe for disaster. And so I would say that is the first thing. And then, of course, all the questions that you know I could imagine, like, well, what do you mean by that? What's the new mindset? We can talk about that, but I think the critical point is to realize we have to be thinking about things differently than we have in the past, and particularly leaders. Assuming that we want physicians to be a major part of the leadership group, how would you redesign medical school and residency training to prepare them for this role? 
What a, what a brilliant question. The obvious thing is that we need to, you know, radically change medical education and medical training. I think that diversity is critical and, you know, yes, diversity in terms of your, your, your ethnic uh, and racial background, uh, gender diversity, um, but I, I also believe diversity in, in professional orientation. And so, you, you know, we've seen examples of this where, uh, you know, in, in medical school now, uh, well, first of all, we're seeing, you know, folks coming from different disciplines uh, applying to medical school, whether, you know, you come from an economist background, an engineering background, you know, a design background, a communications background, a policy background. I think we really need to bring in people who have these different inclinations. I could tell you, there's a, a world of difference when I talk to a physician or a healthcare executive that comes from a different discipline. They're they're thinking about things through a different lens than I am, and I think that that diversity of thinking, of thought, of discipline. Oh my God, it is absolutely 100% critical. And in fact. I think every problem we have in healthcare is going to require a multidisciplinary team because, you know, Robbie, you, you know this as well as I do. I mean, the problems are not going to be solved by, you know, just by a clinical mindset. They're not going to be solved by an operational mindset alone. They're not going to be solved by a business mindset alone. You really have to have now housing, education, employment, uh, the whole kind of whole health movement we were talking about, wellness. I, I just think technical. I think I think it really is that diversity. So I would say the education has to somehow embed that diversity. I mean, I wonder, you know, I would have loved in my first year of medical school to have a series of courses that literally cover the landscape, uh, whether it be, you know, uh, uh, poli-sci, policy, environmentalism, uh, community, right, public health, and, and have a, a series of courses where you can then actually pick almost like a minor. So of course I'm gonna major in, in medicine because I'm in medical school, but what about a minor? And and maybe you know I take off two years in the midst of my medical school training or after my medical school training before residency, and I go out and I get a master's in something else or pursue something else, and then I come back. Um, so because I, you know probably like similar to you, when I was going through medical school, there weren't a lot of choices. Now there were you know one or two people going and getting MBAs that you were just beginning to see that movement, but you didn't have all the diversity of education and possibilities. I think that would really revolutionize it if if you actually had to have a minor in something else, and if you had the opportunity to actually take a break and and do some in-depth studying and 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 experience actually in another field. You've laid out a very impressive and inspirational focus. I know that much of it has come from the guests on your podcast. So all of these things are happening at least at a small level. The question I have for you, Zev, is when do you believe that for the majority of Americans, they're going to experience the benefits that you know are possible, but that will require major change and significant leadership? How long do you envision this change taking? You know, Robbie, I'm, I'm a Gemini, so I've got like two parts to my brain. Uh, I always have at least two opinions on, on anything, uh, sometimes many more than that. You know, it's it said, and I, I forget who was the person, you know, everyone quotes about this, but I think it was Bill Gates, actually, that things generally take a lot longer than you think they'll take, but they're a lot more certain to happen than you think they're going to happen. So I, I think it is certain, um, but uh, caution would tell me that it, it might take a little longer. Now, that's one part of my brain. Another opinion 
which I actually increasingly hold, and I even wrote about it in, in, in the first book on reframing healthcare, is that yes, in the past that's been true, and particularly in healthcare, it's been so, so slow to change, really incremental, in fact, painfully incremental. I, I think, and I wrote this before the pandemic, I think that's that certain things are gonna happen that will accelerate this. Clearly the pandemic happened, it was a major accelerator. Um, and you know, you, you know, when will it affect the major majority of Americans? Well, we saw in the pandemic that literally overnight, uh, you could completely transform healthcare delivery. So we were going from less than you know three to five percent virtual visits to over ninety percent virtual visits, literally in a matter of weeks, and it affected the entire country. So I think we can do this, and I think the technology is there. I think the resources there. I think the money is there. I think it's really, you know, Robbie, I think your your focus on leadership is probably the single most important thing. I think it's quite honestly a matter of leadership. And I'll, and I'll tell you, if you don't mind, I'll share with you a brief, very brief story to explain what I mean by this. Um, and I actually did put the story in the epilogue of the book. I was giving a talk, uh, it might've been now over a year ago. And I get done with the talk and one of the doctors in the audience raises his hands and he says, look, you know, great talk, you know, totally agree with everything you're saying. But but he said, look, Zev, um, you know, the hospital systems right now, we're suffering tremendously. There's so many problems in terms of costs and supply chain and human resources. And our margins are are less than razor thin. I mean, we're, we're you know, we're negative now. Um, how do you expect us in this moment to focus on, you know, this innovation and transformation stuff? I mean, what do you want from us? And I, I said to him, you know, if, if I were new to healthcare and this was like my first rodeo, I would kind of say, hmm, you've got a point there, except for this. I've been talking about innovation and transformation for a long time, been engaged in it for a long time. Five years ago, I was sitting in the same exact room with a different bunch of doctors and executives. And some guy like you raised his hand and he said, Zev, I love what you're doing. I love innovation, transformation, humanism, love all that, but listen, Here's the story. We are making so much money now. Um, things are going so well financially. How do you expect us to stop doing what we're doing and do what you're talking about? And so here's the point. It's never, ever a good time to transform. It's never the exact perfect moment. And it isn't. And this is the red herring. It's never about the financial situation. It's never about the current circumstance. What we know and what history teaches us is that leaders transcend the present moment. They live firmly in it, but they transcend it. And so the issue is not how we are doing financially. The issue is an issue of leadership, period, end of sentence. And the question is, are we going to have the type of leaders who stand up and you know put the, the purpose and the mission of really advancing patient care and health care and health in our country ahead of everything else, or are they going to put it second or third or fifth on the list? And so, Robbie, again, I, I mean, you are so, so spot on with this focus of leadership because it all comes down. And, and Robbie, one last thing. You're, you're absolutely right. The book I wrote, you could actually call it a leadership book because it is all about these beyond the wall leaders. That's why I called it beyond the walls. And I could explain to you where that came from, that term, what inspired it. But it really is leaders who 
take us outside of our literal walls, our conceptual walls, and our systemic walls, and, and take us beyond. That is what the moment calls for. I'd like to go back to something you said a minute or so ago, that we did so well at telemedicine during the pandemic, which is true. But we've dropped back. If you exclude mental health, we're now back under 10%. The experience of most leaders of large healthcare systems is that scaling a great idea proves much harder than discovering it and piloting it. Why do you think that is? And most importantly, your agenda requires a tremendous amount of scaling. What do you believe can be done to overcome the hurdles that exist? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting you use the word scaling. Because um, obviously you you mean in terms of spreading, which is exactly the way I, most of us would understand it, including myself. I also think about it obviously like scaling the walls uh, of our of our past and and of our constraints, and so getting beyond the walls. So uh, has for me now uh, it has a twofold meaning because I I actually do think we need to scale the walls and then scale and spread. Um, no question, lots of real practical concrete challenges i think payment is one of them it's one of the biggest hurdles we have to to scaling you know it, you know unless you're getting paid for something it's it's hard to to scale and i think it's almost like that's the conundrum that's the catch 22 i can't invest in it you know unless i get paid for it and i'm not getting paid for it so i can't invest in it so you you're caught in the spiral um and so that's why you know i do actually think that that you can't you can't and and again i just want to be clear that my perspective and and i I feel so strongly about this. I don't have any sense of pointing a finger at anyone in the healthcare system now. I think it's the system. And so we have to, one of the mindsets is we have to actually approach it in a systemic way. And so it's going to require payers and providers working together to change payment. It's going to require changing, no question about it, you know, obviously policy and, and, and regulations and laws. And there is a certain amount of, I think, taking a hit in the long run. Sometimes you have to, you know, you have to go down the mountain to get back up the mountain. And so I, I do think there's a little bit of that that we're going to have to endure as well. But, but you know, again, I think we can do it. I think, it, you know, it may take some time. But, I, you know, I, I've seen these statistics, Robbie. I don't know. I, I think that I see in our organization, the one I'm currently in, you know, and others across the country, the move to digital and virtual, I think everyone is aware that this is where it's going. And I actually see a lot of activity in this zone. So yes, we might have had a fallback in terms of you know uh, of the virtual business, but everyone's concerned about this is the way I get paid. I get paid by clicks, by RVUs, by you coming into my office to be seen. You know, so we we have to start to to move a bunch of things in tandem to to move forward. But I, I have no doubt, Robbie. I I think you know in the five to seven year range, we're going to see a tremendous amount of virtual and a tremendous amount of automated care going on. And I'll tell you this, Robbie. Just one last answer to your question. This is what the last part of the book is about. So we have a choice. I don't think it's going to be just policy that, you know, you know, I don't think it's going to be CMS or HHS or anything like that that's going to drive this. I think the market's going to drive it. I think that the payers, you know, I don't know about you, but I don't particularly want to go in to see my doctor face-to-face. -face. Um, even if I have a, a specific need, I'd, I'd much rather handle it the way I handle everything else, which is, you know, on my laptop or on my phone. And so... And, and if you tell me it's going to cost me less to do it that way, even better. I use the word scaling because my observation is 
give four doctors in an office the most complex, difficult problem, they will solve it. Take the solution and ask 400 doctors to do exactly the same thing and it doesn't work. And I think there's a lot about individuals and motivation and other pieces that are there. And I think that a lot of the leadership is how do you motivate people? How do you align them? How do you get them to understand that once they get over what I think of as the chemistry's activation energy, that the state they're going to be in is much better, but all they can see is that activation energy. And that could be a much longer conversation. We could have not about where to go, but how to help people get there comfortably despite the fears and anxieties. Well, Robbie, you're a great example of how that could happen. I mean, you, you took an entire, how many tens of thousands of doctors and you created one of the greatest, you know, quality cultures in the world, you know, Kaiser. So, I mean, clearly you, you made that happen. I was just talking to someone about this. I, I do think incentives are critical. I mean, I think we we need to do, we need to change the incentives. I mean, you can't, this is the biggest problem I see in terms of change management right now. You can't ask someone to do something that's going to harm them financially. You, you just can't, or, or you, and you can't present two financial, you know, goals that are completely different. It just drives anyone crazy and it, and it drives their staff. I mean, how do you organize your, your business model and your operations around, you know, value-based care and fee-for-service? I mean, it, it really is hard to do that. And so I do think there is a change management. There's a leadership, as you point out, change management and incentive. All of that has to be in tandem. And again, you're a great example of how do you actually do that across the country, right? On, on both coasts of the country. I mean, if you could do that when you did it, now with all the technology that's available and the communications, and I think it can be done. Well, working on writing your book and doing the research for it, what excited you the most about the future of American healthcare and what disheartened you the most? What excited me the most was the awareness of issues that we were just really not aware of and blind to. And again, whether that the issues were around social determinants of health or healthcare disparity and inequities or teen, you know, the mental health of teenagers or issues around, you know, recognizing uh, that uh, certain segments of the population, whether it be senior care or women needed, uh, you know, a different mindset and a different approach to healthcare. So that excites me probably amongst other things, but that really excites me the most that we actually have that awareness that it's actually in the dialogue and that we're actually doing, people are doing things, they're building companies. Uh, I mean, think about all the companies that are focused on every one of these things, whether it be senior care. So to me, that awareness and the fact that it's actually being acted upon, I, I get beyond excited about that, that we've, J Jeremy, you know, I, I think we, I'll, I'll say it this way and people may disagree, but I think, I feel like we've been in the dark ages of healthcare for the last 40 years. Uh, I've heard some other leaders talk about like, they felt like we were marching through the desert, you know, that 40 year march, uh, you know, biblical reference. But um, I believe that we're coming out of the dark ages and we're actually entering into the renaissance of healthcare delivery. Um, clearly tech enabled. That's another thing I get excited about. The technology is is such a big enabler, but I believe I believe we're, we're moving into, into a renaissance. And I, I do think that we need uh, a new type of leadership or a leadership mindset, which is uh, is a Renaissance leadership mindset. But um, but that excites me. 
I think what disheartens me the most is what I would call the Groundhog Day experience when I've in the past, and I, I think it's increasing less and less though, but in the past where you walk into meetings or you just hear conversations or you read things where it's the same recycled mindset, it's the same orientation, it's the same framework, it's the same problem definition, and you're just rehashing it. And it feels like Groundhog Day where, you know, didn't I, didn't I live this before? And I know how this movie is going to end. I, I find those sorts of conversations um, and they still occur um, around the country, but you know, let's, let's go back to the tried and true. Well, I don't think so. The tried and true, it may be tried, but it's not true. And it hasn't gotten us out of this dilemma. So I get disheartened when I, when I, I see that re re reentrenchment to a thinking that quite honestly takes us into the dark ages and, you know, not for nothing, but you know, this is beyond the scope of, of our conversation and my expertise by far, but, you know, I, I worry about some of this in the larger society where I hear conversations that are quite honestly, you know, taking us back into the dark ages from a cultural perspective and community perspective. What are your next steps as one of the true change agents in healthcare? And how do you plan to help drive disruption in healthcare over the next five to 10 years? Well, I hope on multiple levels, you know, I do believe that dialogue, anytime you have any sort of major change, it starts with a dialogue and, and it continues with a dialogue. And again, you know, uh, the great, example that comes to mind is the founding of this great country. I mean, it was a bunch of people coming together, you know, at the time it was a bunch of guys, but, um, you know, a bunch of people coming together with a, with a really different dialogue, enlarging that dialogue and, you know, and then getting it written down and declaring it. And so I, for me, I, I think that dialogue is critical and I'm one of the people like yourself and Robbie that is, helping to stimulate that dialogue. And I think it's important because, you know, dialogue, it does, it does actually, you know, change how we think it changes how we feel. It changes our emotions. It changes our chemistry. It changes our mindset. Um, and it, it changes our actions and behaviors. And so, um, it changes where we, where we put our resources. So that's on one level, I think it's really, really important to have folks who are focused on, shaping the dialogue and contributing to it and and also identifying i think what's really important is we have a lot of solutions that already exist right and this is the thing you know this notion of positive deviance or appreciative inquiry this notion of you know the, the solutions are here a lot of them are already here what we need is to identify them and to to test them and to resource them and to scale them and a lot of that is is around dialogue and you know you're not going to have collaboration without dialogue it just won't happen and collaboration is going to be one of the most critical components of the future of healthcare delivery we can't stay in our silos anymore we have to break down our silos we have to get beyond the walls i mean this was the shift from the dark ages to to the renaissance was literally getting beyond the walls of our medieval towns and you know whether it was communication or community or commerce or culture I mean, it was all about breaking down those walls and getting beyond them. And so I'm not even, I, to be honest, I take that back. I don't even know you have to break down the walls. You just have to get around them and over them. So I think that's really important. I also hope that I'm going to contribute in, in other ways too, 
you know, uh, my day job is really, you know, being a part of a, a large organization with a, a real commitment to change and, and actually making that change happen. And um, I, I love, you know, partnerships and new ventures and carry design. And, you know, we're just doing some amazing things and others are across the country, too, uh, on a daily basis. And um, I mean, you know, right now, some of my work is literally engaged in in this whole home based care movement. Um, the senior care movement, the living well, aging well movement. And so, you know, creating the the the, the services and, and, and programs and initiatives to make that actually happen, uh, both from a clinical perspective, operational perspective, business model perspective. Um, so I'm hoping to contribute on both levels and at the level of the dialogue and strategy, as well as at a very, very concrete level of change. What's one major leadership error you've made in your career and how would you handle it differently now, given all you learned in writing the book? The leadership um, error, if you will, uh, I think is really around relationship. I think where I have made mistakes is when I forget that, you know, we have all these constructs around us, you know, organizations and divisions and pro formas and all this sort of contracts and, you know, technology. And in the end, you know, we're just, you know, we're just human beings. We're, we're just people. And we know that the most important thing is, is relationships. We, we, we can't last. They're like, it's like food and water. You can't last without that. And, and, and trust is so, so important. And so I think for me, the biggest leadership errors I've made is when I've lost sight of that, and I let something else come become uh, supersede that, and uh, and the relationship suffers, and the trust suffers, and it's 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 really pained me. In fact, I'm I'm dealing with one of those right now where I wish I had said something different or approached something differently uh, in a different way, keeping the relationship as the most important part as opposed to something else which took over, and the relationship the trust. I lost trust with these other folks and, you know, and then the relationship suffered and, and, and the interaction we were having and the business thing we were having. And I, and I really, it pains me because in the end, the most important thing was the relationship. And it, it, it you know, if you have a good relationship and a solid relationship and a trusting relationship, you can work through just about anything. And I think that is for leaders today in healthcare the relationship, the trust, the integrity is so critical with the physician workforce in particular, right? Because um, I think there's a tremendous lack of trust amongst physicians right now with, with leadership across the country and with the healthcare system. Um, and I think the relationship with, with, with uh, not just with physicians in the organization, but, but nurses and others in the organization, but also I think the relationship and the trust uh, with the uh, public, with the, you know, with the consumers of healthcare, I'd like to see that be the, you know, sort of a question of the day for every leader every day, which is, you know, how do I behave today so that by the end of the day, I've created more trusting, uh, more meaningful relationships with my doctors and, and providers and my patients. And, and at the end of the day, ask yourself that question, did you do that? I think that would transform healthcare delivery if leaders did that. Zev, thank you so much for being on the show today. You're a humble, authentic, purpose-driven 
leader. I know your book, Beyond the Walls, will be a great success. I know it won't be published in the fall, but people can pre-order it sometime this summer. I can't wait to read the final copy. Thank you much, so much for being on the show today. Robbie, I, I cannot tell you how much fun. and It's always just a, a great a great opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please leave it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare, Breaking the Rules with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.